the texts this morning are Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 20. And as the text from Isaiah is included in the, math, the text from Matthew, I'm simply reading the one. These are the words of God. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary, thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Our Father, our gracious God, we are very grateful for this opportunity to gather like this around your word. I pray your Holy Spirit would continue to hold us and sustain us and teach us while we do so. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in our denomination, all the churches are required as a condition of membership to adopt three creeds into their statement of faith. Those three are from the time of the early church, and they are the Apostles' Creed, which is set the second century, most likely, the Nicene Creed, fourth century, and the definition of Chalcedon, fifth century, the 400s, and which we just recited this morning. After that, all our churches are required to pick one of the reformational creeds, but all of them have to share these three, the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, and the definition of Chalcedon. And we don't want to just simply have them in our books somewhere or in the file somewhere. These are things that we believe. We want to uh, recite them periodically. We recite the Apostles' Creed every week, and then the Nicene Creed and definition of Chalcedon at different times in the church year. And what I thought I'd do this Advent season is work through some of the thornier issues in the definition of Chalcedon so that you might see the scriptural case that can be made for these things that we confess. Now, of all the great figures of history, if all of them were little pinpricks of light, small twinkling stars against a a very black backdrop, Christ arrived 2,000 years ago as something of a supernova. Uh, You have all these, you know, you have these figures, uh, you know, the Nebuchadnezzar, and they're just all little pinpricks. But Christ arrived as a supernova, sort of as close as the moon. And his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection transformed everything. In other words, the the Lord's mere presence on earth rattled everything, shook everyone up, and everything was different after that. It transformed everything. And those who accepted the reality of that manifestation of divine grace that was the Lord Jesus still had to grapple with, and they had to grapple with for centuries, how to talk about it. What did it mean? All right, when we confess that this man who walked and talked and ate with us and spoke like other people do and, and you know, sailed in a boat and he, he slept in a bed, he did all these things that people do, and we confess that he is almighty, infinite God, I mean, there's, there's some things to work out. There's, there's some 
things to, uh, we don't want to get this wrong. We don't want to formulate it in a wrong way. And the church had to grapple with this for centuries, uh, three and four centuries. Now, the basic outlines of the gospel story were set down in the Apostles' Creed. So you'll notice in the creed that we say every week, we are basically confessing the outline of Christ's life, the outline of what he did. He came, he was, uh, uh, he, he, we confess who he was, he's the uh, Jesus Christ our Lord, but we walk through the details of his life. He was crucified uh, under Pontius Pilate and so on. That is, it's the basic outlines or the basic narrative of the gospel story. That's the Apostles' Creed. By the fourth century, the church rightly insisted on the full deity of Jesus Christ as well as his full humanity. That was the Nicene Creed. This was in response to a teacher named Arius who uh, was teaching the world that Jesus was the greatest of the angels. Jesus was, after all is said and done, a creature. He was the most glorious of creatures. He was the first creature. He was the first entity that was made by God Almighty, but he was nonetheless a creature. And the church rejected that and said, no, Jesus is God. All right, that's the Nicene Creed. But that created another set of questions. What was the relationship of that deity to the humanity that we also confess? So we've got two natures, divine and human, and one person, Jesus of Nazareth, how do, we, how, how do we talk about that? So that was addressed by Chalcedon. The, the definition of Chalcedon that we just stated this morning is the church's, um, I won't say attempt because I think they did a wonderful job at it. I think they, uh, they set up the guardrails. They said, we're saying this and not this. We're saying this and not the other thing. This is why we recite the definition of Chalcedon during Advent. Advent is the time when we are celebrating the incarnation and we are running up to Christmas, the celebration of the birth of Christ. And so this Advent season, I'm going to be showing the scriptural case for certain aspects of this definition, certain aspects of this creed, as well as the importance of those elements. Why does it matter? If someone says, you're making my head hurt, who cares? Um, I want to talk about why it's important. Today, we're going to consider the crucial doctrine of the virgin birth. The crucial doctrine of the virgin birth. As the, as the definition says, as regards his manhood begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary, the virgin. Right? As regards his manhood begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary, the Virgin. Mary gave birth to Christ in his humanity, and we're going to get into that later. We also confess in this creed that she was Theotokos, the God-bearer. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that Mary gave birth to deity, but I'm, she gave birth to the one who is God, and we're going to... I'm getting ahead of myself. That's for another week. So let's consider the virgin birth. In the passage from Isaiah, the word rendered as virgin there, as you're reading a translation of, of Isaiah 7.14, the word rendered as virgin, a virgin is Alma, Alma, which can mean either virgin or young woman. Right? The Hebrew word Alma can mean virgin, and it can also mean simply a young woman, not necessarily a virgin. Okay, Virgin or young woman. 
And in Isaiah's case, with regard to its immediate fulfillment, the sign that he was offering to King Ahaz, which is what is going on in that chapter, was a sign that involved a young woman and her young child, and she was not a virgin. The young, the young woman in Isaiah's lifetime was not a virgin. She was simply a young woman. Because Isaiah is offering Ahaz a sign. And what was the sign? Before this child, who was to be conceived and born in the ordinary way, was a, before this child was able to choose the good and refuse evil, the adversaries that Ahaz was so worried about would be gone. That was the sign. So this means that the child was to be delivered by a young woman, and the sign would be what happened to the enemies of Ahaz. So there was a sign involved. There was a prophetic miracle involved. But Isaiah was saying, uh, this woman is going to conceive. She's going to bear a son. And by the time this son has grown to an age of moral discernment, by the time this boy has grown to the age of being able to reject evil and choose the good, these enemies that you're so worried about are going to be out of the picture. So that was the sign that Isaiah gave. Now, more than a few have pointed at this and and have said that it shows that the Christian insistence on the virgin birth for Christ is simply a pious superstition, tagged on later. We came along later and we said, okay, wouldn't it be great if Jesus was born in a miraculous way? And so we added on the virgin birth. But there's actually a double fulfillment here, as Matthew shows us. There's a double fulfillment, and this happens uh, in Scripture, where there's not just the, it's not that the prophet speaks and then something's fulfilled centuries later. The prophet speaks and something happens short term, and that short term fulfillment is itself a typological prophecy of what's coming long term. So Joseph was betrothed to Mary, and he was troubled about what to do. And it's un- understandable. When she turned up pregnant, He knew, as well as we do, that this could not have happened unless Mary had been unfaithful to him. Sometimes modern uh, modern scholars talk as though, well, now that we have modern science, we know that virgin births can't happen. Well, Joseph knew it as well as anybody. (laughs) Joseph knew, no, (laughs) no, this doesn't happen, right? This doesn't happen. So he's trying to figure out what to do. Mary, Mary had to have been unfaithful to him because he knew that he wasn't the father, right? And yet, it says, because Joseph was a righteous man, he was trying to figure out how to divorce her without humiliating her. That's in Matthew 1.19. He's trying to figure out how to put her away without humiliating her. He was not going to treat her the way the woman caught in adultery is treated in the Gospel of John, where he's bringing her, you know, hauling her in for judgment. He wants to throw, he wants to kill her. He's not that kind of person. He's a righteous man, and he wants to let her down quietly. While he's mulling over all of this, now, Mary at least knew what had happened because she'd had the angel come to her and say, this is what's going to happen. She knew that something miraculous was going on. Joseph was in a state of consternation. He thought he knew Mary, and he also knew the laws of nature and what, am I, what sense am I going to make of this? So while he's mulling all of this over, the angel of the Lord came to him in a dream and called him a son of David. It's quite interesting. It says, verse 20, saying, Joseph, thou, son of David, fear not. 
Now, why, why is Joseph called the son of David? Joseph's genealogy, you may have noticed in the past, the difference between the Lord's genealogies in Ma- genealogy in Matthew and the Lord's genealogy in Luke. One is his legal covenantal genealogy here in Matthew, descended through from David through Joseph, his legal father, and the other is his genealogy through Mary. Mary and Joseph were both descended from David. But the angel comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, son of David, son of David, let's have a talk. What do you think of when you think of David? David and Goliath, maybe, but or David and Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba. Joseph, son of David, O pure one. This means that Joseph is descended from Bathsheba also. The first child of David and Bathsheba dies, but the second child, Solomon, uh, doesn't. So Joseph is descended from Bathsheba also. And in Matthew's genealogy, there are four women mentioned, all of them with reputation issues, all of them with reputation issues. And Matthew is not bringing them in in order to glorify immorality or to, to emphasize the Lord's shady past. He's not, but that's, at first glance, that looks like what he's doing, right? The four women are Tamar, who tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her so that she might be part of the Messianic line. Rahab, who was a Canaanite prostitute in Jericho. Ruth, who was Rahab's daughter-in-law, who was a Moabitess. And Moab, the whole nation of Moab was descended from Lot and Lot's incestuous union with his, um, one of his daughters. Ruth herself was a virtuous woman, but she came from a tainted background. And then Bathsheba. There are four women in Matthew's genealogy, four of them, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. This is perhaps to head off the temptation for Joseph to get on a high horse. Listen, son of David and Bathsheba, I've got something for you. The angel, to- the angel also told him of Mary's innocence by assuring him that the child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's verse 20. The child is conceived by the Holy Spirit. The child was going to be a boy, and his name would be Jesus because he was going to save his people from their sins. Verse 21. We are then told that this was in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy cited earlier. Verse 22. But this passage here in Matthew, this passage here in Matthew was written in Greek, not in Hebrew. I told you earlier that the Hebrew Alma can mean virgin or young woman. But here, the word virgin is the translation of Parthenos, which means virgin, only virgin, and nothing but virgin. Okay? That's what Parthenos means. And of course, we know the Parthenon is named after, is connected to this word Parthenos. It means virgin, only virgin, and nothing but virgin. The result of such a remarkable conception and birth was Emmanuel, which means God with us. Verse 23. Now that God with us there has been the center of theological reflection and debate for centuries. When Joseph woke up, he obeyed the angel and he took Mary as his wife, although he did not have relations with her until after Jesus was born, as we are told in verse 25. So, Parthenos means virgin. Also, it's, it's worth mentioning here that the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, 
which was completed before Christ. It was completed before any Christians were talking about the virgin birth at all, when the Jewish rabbis in Alexandria translated Isaiah 7 into Greek centuries before Christ, they translated Alma as Parthenos. Right? So the, the, the Jews already were interpreting that as a virgin birth, not simply a, uh, a, a, a child being born to a young woman. All right, so let's uh, consider a, a side aspect of this. Are we talking about the virgin birth or are we talking about the virgin Mary? Okay, now when we, well, I'll I'll get to that in a minute. We know from elsewhere in scripture, from other places in scripture, that Joseph and Mary had at least six other children. Matthew 13, 55 and 56. And depending on the number of sisters, maybe more. In other words, we have four brothers mentioned by name. And then it says, and his sisters. So we know there were at least two sisters, but there may have been more sisters. All right, so we have four brothers and two sisters, maybe more sisters than that. Although they did not believe in Jesus initially, uh, as we can see in John 7, verse 5, his brothers were giving him a hard time. Why don't you go down to the feast and show yourself? They They were sort of heckling him or pestering him. Two of his brothers went on to write books of the Bible, James and Jude are both written by uh, brothers of the Lord. In fact, James is mentioned as one of the witnesses of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 7. This means that for faithful Protestants, our confessional issue is the virgin birth. In other words, we're saying we we hold that Mary was a virgin when she conceived, when, when the Lord was conceived in her womb, and she was a virgin when Jesus was born but she did not have to remain a virgin for the rest of her life. We do not hold what is called the perpetual virginity of Mary, an understanding that makes his mentioned brothers and sisters into cousins or such like. It's a figure of speech or maybe Joseph was married another time or, you know, it's that kind of, that kind of workaround. But it says very plainly, his brothers and sisters. So we take his brothers and sisters as simply a straight-up um, siblings who grew up in the same house with him and who had to deal with that. An older brother who was perfect. (laughs) Some of you kids have to deal with an older brother or sister who thinks they're perfect, but these people had to deal with an older brother who was perfect. Why can't you be more like Jesus? (laughs) But while we hold to the virgin birth simply, it's only fair to note that some of the reformers did hold to Mary's perpetual virginity. Uh, Luther and Calvin did, for example, which is a, a real oddity, uh, given the, the trajectory of the whole Protestant Reformation. But you will notice that in the Apostles' Creed, the way we cite it, the way we, we recite it, there's a comma between virgin and Mary. All right? we, he was born of the virgin, comma, Mary. All right? Mary is the one who was the virgin that he was born of. In other words, it's not a perpetual forever title, the Virgin Mary. Um, by the end of her life, we hold that she, she was married. It says in verse 25 that he knew her not until she had brought, she, he knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. 
So uh, Mary and Joseph were married in the ordinary way after the birth of Jesus, and there were other kids in the household. But why a virgin birth? What's the point of a virgin birth? Is it simply to say something is remarkable here? Uh, is it simply a way of pointing at it like the, um, as I think you could make a good case that the arrival of the Magi was a remarkable event. The Magi come from a far com- country and they're going to give, okay, this is, this is um, a remarkable instance, but there's nothing, uh, there's, there's nothing miraculous about their arrival or miraculous about them giving Jesus a gift. But there is a miracle involved in the miraculous conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary and her giving birth to him while never having been with a man. In order to be able to die for us as wayward sheep, the Lord had to be two things. The Lord had to be two things. And I want to impress this on you because this is right at the heart of what the gospel means. This is right at the heart of how the gospel comes to us. Jesus had to be two things in order to die for you and for me. If he had not, uh, if these two things had not been characteristic of him, a death would have done no good for us. It wouldn't have been efficacious. The Lord first needed to be a true lamb because the sacrifice needed to be one of us. In other words, we were the wayward sheep and the sacrifice had to be representative. So if if we had wandered off in rebellion and God had decided to obliterate a perfect angel, you know, just blow up a perfect, now you exist, now you don't, that annihilation of an angel would have had nothing to do with us. We would not have been forgiven. There would have been no connection to us. In order for us to be forgiven, one of us had to be sacrificed. A representative of us, a true representative of us, needed to be sacrificed. But the pro- here's the problem. If he is truly one of us, would he not be corrupted also, like all of us are? Right? If he truly came of tr- true human stock, wouldn't he have had sin that needed to be dealt with? If he's, He needs to be one of us in order to represent us, and he needs to not be one of us in order to be pure so that the sacrifice can be a spotless lamb that is offered up to God. In other words, he needed to be a lamb. That means he needed to be one of us. And he needed to be a spotless lamb, which meant he couldn't be one of us. Because if he's one of us, he's not going to be spotless. All of us are corrupted. The lamb had to be one of our number, and yet the lamb needed also to be spotless. This was a requirement of the Passover lamb. You can't can't bring a blemished lamb for sacrifice. You can't you can't say, okay, Passover's rolling around. Let's, get, let's find the sheep in the flock that was sort of the, um, the ratty one anyway. We were going to get rid of it anyway. We were tired of feeding that one anyway because it, it's no good. Um, that kind of calculation, Malachi rebukes when he's talking about the people bringing the maimed uh, or blemished sacrifice and offering that to God. And he, Malachi says, would you offer that to your governor? Would you offer that as a, in a horizontal relationship to someone? No, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't do that. So the, the lamb, the Passover lamb, had to be spotless. That was a type 
of the ultimate Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus, who also needed to be spotless. Now, this issue is going to come up later in one of the uh, subsequent messages, um, but I want to mention it for the first time here. One of the early fathers of the church, Gregory of Nazianzus, once said this, For that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. That which he has not assumed, he has not healed. We believe that the corruption that Adam's rebellion um, placed upon us and that we are all entailed in was a complete corruption. There's not one spot in our human existence that is untainted by sin. It's not as though our bodies are fallen, but our minds are unfallen, or our bodies are fallen, but our souls have this divine spark that sin didn't get to. The, the, the Bible teaches that the depravity, the rebellion of Adam, gets into absolutely everything. So we are like a glass of water that you pour a thimble full of ink into. We're not uh, the fall. Calvinists sometimes speak of total depravity, which is a bad Uh, bad way of talking about it because that makes it sound like absolute depravity Um, that makes it sound like we are orcs uh, orcs out of hell but we're not orcs out of hell we are it's not like a glass of ink and it's not a glass of pure water it's more like a glass of water with a thimble full of ink poured into it and stirred and that ink corrupts everything that ink taints everything it gets to every part of the water but it's not a glass of ink It's not a glass of ink, but everything is tainted, everything is corrupted, everything is blemished. Everything's got a problem with it. Now, Gregory of Nazianzus said, Jesus became fully human so that every aspect of our humanity might be redeemed. And anything that he did not assume is not going to be touched by his redemption. Anything that he did not take on to himself, this is why He needs to be fully human, entirely human, completely human, so that we might be completely, entirely redeemed. But how could he assume human nature, which needed to be redeemed, without being contaminated by the condition of the nature, which needed to be redeemed? How could Jesus become really, truly, completely human, as human as you or I are, which he did, And that incarnation was permanent, by the way. Jesus remains in his humanity today, now, interceding for you as a high priest, which we will also get to later. But how could he become really human without becoming really sinful? that's That's the challenge. And the virgin birth answers that question. That's why the virgin birth is important. We We do not know the precise mechanism of this, but it appears that the covenantal guilt for Adam's sin descends to all of us through our human fathers. The covenantal guilt for Adam's sin descends to all of us through our covenant representatives, our human fathers. This is ultimately true, of course, of Adam himself. Notice that that when Adam and Eve were in the garden, Eve uh, was deceived before Adam was deceived. In fact, Adam sinned with his eyes open. I don't think he was deceived at all. I think he just sinned with his eyes open. Eve was deceived. Now, was it sinful to be deceived? Yes, she shouldn't have done it. Was it sinful for her to eat the fruit? Yes, she shouldn't have done it. But when she ate the fruit, did did the fall occur? No, the fall didn't occur when Eve ate the fruit. She gave to her husband and he ate, 
Remember that the commandment was given to Adam before the creation of Eve. Eve wasn't there when the, when the restriction was placed on the tree. God told Adam, don't eat from the tree. He didn't tell Eve that. Eve heard it from Adam. So, and it says in Matthew chapter 5, that it's through one man that sin entered the world. Sin didn't enter the world in terms of the fall until the husband, the head of our, the, the father of our race, sinned. He sent us into this condition, the fall, or what might better be called the crash, happened when Adam sinned. And this also dispenses with the jab or the canard that um, junior high boys sometimes throw at junior high girls about how we wouldn't be sinning, we wouldn't be in this squabble on the playground if it hadn't been for Eve, uh, wrecking the whole thing. Well, Eve didn't wreck the whole thing. Adam wrecked the whole thing. Right? Adam wrecked the whole thing. It's through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. In an, analog- in an analogous way, the, the sin that comes, to, the reason we're all conceived in sin, the reason we're all born in sin, the reason covenantal sin is entailed upon us is because we are begotten by our human fathers. In some way, we don't know the precise precise mechanism, but God arranged for Adam's sin to be handed down to us covenantally through our human fathers. And this is how God arranged for our salvation, through a true man, but one who had no human father. Jesus was a true man, but without a human father. He had a human grandfather. He had a human grandfather, Mary's dad, Uh, but He was not entailed in our sin. So it says, at once, in the the definition of Chalcedon, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man. Truly God and truly man. So Jesus is no less human than any of us. Jesus is no less human than any of us. And yet God arranged for him to be fully human, born in absolute purity in the midst of an impure race, which meant that he was eligible to become the second head, or as Paul says in Corinthians and in Romans, Paul calls him the second Adam. So we have a new head of the human race, and he can be a new head of a, human, of a new human race and be that head without passing on the blemish of the first Adam. And I want to argue that apart from a virgin birth, this is simply not possible. Apart from a virgin birth, that wasn't going to happen. God arranged for him to be as human as you and as human as I am, and yet without sin. He, he suffered the force of temptation. He walked places to get around. He, he uh, slept. He got hungry. He would eat. He was truly a human being. And he was truly related to people by blood. He was truly he was he was descended from David. Jesus was a Davidson, and he he was a true Davidson. But God broke the circuit uh, between a human father and a human son in such a way that Christ was not entailed in the original guilt or the original sin of Adam, so that he could be a new Adam, so he could be a new head of a new human race. So, this is why Galatians 4.4 says it this way. 
But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Born of a woman, born under the law. He was not begotten by a man, but he was born of a woman. He was not begotten by a man, but he was born of a woman. The only thing that not being begotten by a man removed was the transmission of sin. It didn't take away any of his essential humanity. That is where the sin comes from. So, why did, why did God do this? God did this, sent his son to be born of a woman, born under the law, so that you might, rede- you might be redeemed from the curse of the law. He did this so that Jesus could be the spotless lamb who died genuinely representing his brothers and sisters in the human race, and he was pure so he could represent them and not be a blemished sacrifice, but he was one of us so he could be a representative sacrifice. And the the virgin birth is the key that unlocks that particular lock. It's not simply a remarkable instance to show God's power. It's It's much, much more than that. It is God's provision of a spotless lamb to represent a bunch of dirty lambs and so that we might be assembled together into one flock and brought home to the Father. Our Father and God, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you for the mystery that is connected to the virgin birth. We're grateful for all of it. And Father, I pray you'd help us as we reflect on these things and meditate on them. I pray that we would do so in a way that uh, is conducive to increased growth in holiness. And I pray that you would do this as we lift back up to you the words that Jesus taught us to pray, saying, There's a way of restricting this supper so as to drain it of its meaning. And similarly, there's a way of broadening it that renders it so thin that it might as well not be there. Some restrict the supper just to members of the local body who've passed a strict gauntlet of catechism questions without stammering once. Some, aiming for inclusivity, distribute the quote-unquote supper to all manner of unrepentant heathens. And why stop there the recently ordained non-binary lesbian Episcopalian reasons? Her 13 feral cats deserve means of grace as well. We welcome all baptized believers to join us at the Lord's table. This isn't because we have a low view of the sacredness of the supper, but because we have a high view. While we believe that formal membership with a local body is necessary for the care of souls, the roster of our membership is neither the limit of or identical with the roster of all of God's elect saints. The boundary line of of, of a church's membership roles tells us which souls God will call the elders of that local body to give and account for on the last day, Hebrews 13, 17. The boundary for who might partake of the supper stretches from sea to sea, from continent to continent, and from generation to generation. The doorway for partaking of the supper is that of holy baptism, and all who've passed through that door are most welcome here. The question isn't, are you a member of this local body? Rather, the question is, are you baptized into Christ? If you are baptized, then come. If you are Christ's, then come. If you're born of God, then come. If you have looked to him in evangelical faith, yet you are just a visitor here with us this morning, then come. Here is the communion of saints. And so come and welcome. Come in faith and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Father, through this meal and by your spirit, you knit us together with saints around the world and with saints who've gone before. 
You do all of this because Christ was born of the virgin, lived, then died, and then rose again for our salvation. And we partake of this meal as a living memorial of that good news. In Jesus' name we give thanks. Amen. The charge is this. Jesus, born of a virgin, never sinned in the course of his life. That does not fog him up when it comes to understanding you. We sometimes think, well, he doesn't really understand me because all this sin, all this gunk, all this fog, all this confusion. No, he's the only one who isn't fogged by sin. He's the only one who really understands where you are, where you're coming from. He is a high priest who can truly sympathize with you in your weakness. No one else could do it better. So walk with him this week. Now receive with believing hearts the benediction of your God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.